Our Old Testament lesson is found in Joshua 23 and 24. We won't read the entirety of both chapters, that we would be here all morning. But we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 23 and jump around into chapter 24. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriage with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And then in chapter 24, Joshua gathers all Israel at Shechem to celebrate a covenant renewal service, and he reminds them of the things that God has done for them, all the way back to Abraham to that day. And Picking up in verse 13 of chapter 24, God says this to Israel, I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. 
Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against us, lest we deal falsely with our God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and present ourselves before you in your presence and ask that you would speak to us, open our eyes, that we would see wonderful and mysterious things in this portion of your scriptures, that we would cling to you and love you and forsake all of the gods of our fathers in the nation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 2011, there was a two-month search for a man named Max Melitzer. His extended family had hired a private detective, and this private detective went on this two-month-long search, scouring the nation for Max. He finally found him in a park in Salt Lake City, and he was in this park pushing his belongings, all of his belongings fitting into this one grocery cart. So he talked to Max, and he sat him down on a park bench, and he proceeded to tell Max that his brother had just died. Max had been homeless for numerous years and had been estranged from his family for many years as well. And he told him that his brother died of cancer, but when he died, he had it in his will that he left a large, significant amount of money to Max. And all Max had to do was to go claim his inheritance and live into that inheritance. And by receiving this inheritance, living in it, his whole life would be changed. He would be set up for the rest of his life. And that's how inheritances work, isn't it? We receive things that we have not worked for. We are given things as a gift from other people. When they pass, we receive an inheritance from them. And Israel is in a spot in their national life where they've claimed their inheritance. God has made promises to them to established them as a beachhead by which and through whom he would bless the whole world. And he has done that. He has fought for them. He has gone ahead of them. And they have claimed the land that God had promised hundreds of years before to their father Abraham. They have claimed it. They have received their inheritance. And now they have an opportunity at the end of Joshua's life to live into that inheritance to become that blessing to the nations, to become the light of the nations, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people set apart for their God to bless the whole world and to bring salvation from their God to all the world. But they're gonna have to do it without Joshua. Joshua says he's, in his own words, he's old and well advanced in years and he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth which just means he's about to croak. Dude's about to die. 
And they're gonna have to step out in faith without Joshua. You see, Joshua has been their leader since Moses left, and Israel hasn't lived life without a leader since Egypt. You see, Moses led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and he's been their leader. He's been their representative. And when Moses died, he established Joshua as his successor. And so the people are having to move into this new season of their life, take a step forward in faith without the glue that has been holding their tribal clans together. And remember, Israel's not an established nation. They're not mighty yet. They have taken the land, but they haven't established themselves as a nation. In some ways, they're like Scottish clans that are held together by their tribal lord, Joshua. They're held together by him, and he's the glue that's holding this band of misfits together. And This might seem like a crisis. Joshua is about to die, and they have to move into their inheritance, into this land, and become a blessing to the world. But in fact, it's an, a neat opportunity for them to step out in faith, for them to trust the Lord, to continue to do what he has been doing for them to continue to establish them as a people for the blessing of the nations. And so how does Joshua empower the people to own their new season and to live into their inheritance? And many of us would think that he should call all the heads of the tribes together and into his war room and he should come up with some strategy to continue to conquer the, the land after he's dead. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he knows that God is their warrior. He's the one who has been fighting for them all along. So they don't need a war room. Many of us would think that he should set up a plan of succession for Israel, or better yet, choose his own successor so that they don't have to. But he doesn't do that because God is their king. He is the one who's ruling over them. We also think it might be wise for Joshua to write a constitution to grab a couple of other guys and give some checks and balances for the nation of Israel to establish them as a nation and to teach them how to function as a government without him? Doesn't do that either because God has already given them his law to teach them how they are to function and to live as his people and his possession, his kingdom of priests. When Israel is on the cusp the precipice of the unknown, life without Joshua. They have this opportunity to honor God by owning their inheritance, by living into their inheritance that God has promised them. Joshua actually does something relatively counterintuitive to us, at least to our Western intellectual minds. He holds a worship service. He gathers all of Israel for a covenant renewal service. We can just call this worship. He gathers them to worship the one true God. And what this indicates for us is that for Israel and for us, stepping into our inheritance, these promises of God, begins with worship. We celebrate who God is, what he's done for us. We recall who we are in light of the things that he has done for us remembering whose we are because of the redeeming work that he has accomplished on our behalf and we offer ourselves to him in service. So what's involved in this worship service? Because the answer to that question ought to inform the way that we think about worship today. 
What's involved in this worship of the one true God? The first thing that we see is that we pay attention to God's word. What's involved is that we pay attention to God's word. We see that in all of chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24 when Joshua gathers the people of Israel at Shechem for this covenant renewal service. He begins with, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and he goes on this litany of what God has done for Israel all the way back to Abraham to the present day. We also see it in chapter 23. He does something interesting in chapter 23. He preaches a sermon. He gathers Israel and, their, uh, and their, the heads of their clans, their elders, judges and officers, and he preaches a sermon. He says, I'm old and well advanced in years and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done. And he continues in this, uh, interesting, this, this structure that I learned in seminary. I'll give you a little glimpse into a seminary education here. He starts with, what has God done for you? And then he moves into, now what are you to do in grateful response? In seminary, we had fancy word, two fancy words for that called the indicative and the imperative. Sounds really fancy, I know. Uh, but the indicative is just what's true. What is true about God? What is true about his dealing with his people? What's true about redemption? What's true about salvation here in this passage? And then the imperative is what we are to do in light of that truth, how we are to respond in gratitude and thanksgiving, how we are to offer ourselves to God in his service. And Joshua constantly does this, this ebb and flow of indicative imperative. What's true? What has God done for you? What has he promised you? And then how you are to respond. It says, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your, ha- for, for your sake. The Lord, in verse five, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so he reminds them of what he has done and then reminds them of the promises of God to continue what he has conti- he's been doing. Then he says in verse six, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that, that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So there's this constant ebb and flow in his sermon of what has God done for you? And now as his people, how are you to live in response to that? What we need are faithful men who will preach God's word to us, who will love us and care for us and take God's word and tell us what God has done for us and then how we are to respond to him. Give us the truths of the gospel and then tell us how we are to live into that inheritance, those truths and those promises. And by paying attention to God's word, Israel reorients their lives, recenters their lives and their worship on the one true God. They're giving themselves to God through his word, centering themselves on God and his will and his ways. And we have to do that with our kids or if you are a child, you, this is done to you as well by your parents. They have to center you. I have to center Maddie Grace. Why? Because she's all over the place. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> but if I just let her go, who knows where she would go? Sometimes... 
I have to rein her in. I have to recenter her life on what is good and what is true because she'll just wander off both physically and spiritually unless I create boundaries for her that God has created for her, reminding her who I am as her father, reminding her who she is as my child and then what is a grateful response. I've actually gotten into this practice with her to say, Maddie Grace, what do you do when you love mommy and daddy? Listen and obey. That's her response, listen and obey. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but listen and obey, I'm recentering her on who daddy is, who she is, and what is her proper response. And by giving ourselves, paying attention to God's word, we do the same thing. God recenters us, centers our lives on his will and his ways. And then secondly, we enter into a dialogue with God. So we pay attention to his words, but the second thing involved in worship is that we enter into a dialogue with God, and this dialogue takes the shape of a well-structured worship service. Yes, a liturgical worship service occurs in chapter 24. This covenant renewal. Let's look at what it looks like. Joshua in verse one gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summons the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they present themselves before God. And so the first movement of this worship service is that the people gather and they present themselves to God. This isn't, uh, there's, a, there's a song that I was making fun of a few weeks ago, if you like it, I'm sorry. Uh, but it's, it goes like this, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come into this place and fill the atmosphere. And I understand the premise of the song that we want God to be in our presence, in our midst, uh, and, and we're asking for him to be present. But what's happening here and what happens in our worship services is not that we welcome God into our presence. It's that God calls us and he welcomes us into his presence. And so we present ourselves before the one true God. And then in verses two to 13, Israel is reminded of God's redemptive acts. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Egypt and made his offspring many. And he goes on to tell Israel how God has redeemed them how he has worked on their behalf to call them out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give Abraham uh, his children, Isaac, and to give Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and then how he redeemed Israel from Egypt out of the house of slavery. And he established them in the land that he had promised hundreds of years beforehand to their father, Abraham. The second movement is that they are reminded of God's redemptive acts, how he has worked on their behalf. We do something similar. If you were noticing this morning, we went through confession and assurance, being reminded of the redemptive acts of God on our behalf, what he has done through Jesus to save us, to bring us into this new family, what he has done and how he has worked for us. And then in verses 14 to 18, they confess their allegiance to the one true God. They're challenged by Joshua 
to choose this day whom they will serve. And how does Israel respond? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. And so they confess their allegiance. They go through this litany of what God has done for them. They reiterate those redemptive acts of God. And by doing so, they're confessing their own allegiance. We also do something similar. By reciting the creeds together as a people, we are confessing not only our faith, but by confessing our faith, we're confessing our allegiance to the one true God that we have claimed him as our God and that we worship him, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we are giving ourselves to him. And then in verses 19 to 24 of chapter 24, Joshua gives instruction in keeping with that confession. So what are they now to do? How are they then to live in light of that confession of who God is and how they claim him as their one God? It says in verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people recite again, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. We too receive instruction in keeping with that confession that we make each Sunday. Instruction through the Psalms, instruction through the uh, scripture lesson, instruction through the sermon. We are learning over and over and over again who we are, not only because of what God has done, but then how are we to respond to him? Receiving instruction in keeping with that confession. And then Joshua writes it all down in the book of the law of God. Now we don't need to write down the covenant. That was a practice in the ancient Near East that they would write a copy of the covenant that the, the, the king and the servant made. We have a copy. We have a copy of the promises of God that he has made to us and how we are to live in light of those promises and the things that he has done for us. And then in verse 28, Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance, presumably to live in line with that confession, offering themselves to God in obedience. They're sent out to obey. Now, all of our worship services ends with an opportunity to uh, obey and live in line with that confession by praying in line with his will in accordance with his ways, by offering our tithes and offerings, not just as a thank you, but also in order to set apart the rest of our lives, asking that God would sanctify all of our lives for his glory and for our good. And then we're sent away with a benediction to move into the future, into that next week in obedience. So this isn't innovative. This isn't new. We're not doing something fancy. This isn't for the advanced Christian. It's not as if the not-so-structured liturgy is for the beginner Christian and then a liturgical service is for the advanced Christian. That's That's not what we're saying here. We're saying that these are the dynamics and the movements of the gospel. These are the movements of a dialogue with the one true God. We present ourselves to him. We are reminded what he has done for us. We confess our allegiance to him. We hear instruction from him. And then we are sent out and offer ourselves to him in obedience. These are just the dynamics and the ebbs and the flows of the gospel that we enter into each week. And what that means also is that to neglect this 
to neglect the gathering of God's people to enter into this dialogue with him, to neglect that is to do harm to us ourselves, to do harm to ourselves and to our families. And I don't want to be callous uh, when, I'm, when I say that because there are real, real difficulties sometimes getting out the door on a Sunday morning. Sometimes it's just exhausting. Sometimes you wake up and you just don't want to fight the kids again. You got to do it five days out of the week, sending them to school. It's nice to have a couple of days and not to, to have to battle with the children, wrangling them, quite, sometimes quite literally wrestling them into their clothes. That's really hard. And then sometimes you're just too sad. You wake up and you're just too sad to walk out the door. And you're just too sad to walk into a room of people that seem to have their lives put together. That's hard. When you wake up in sorrow and you have to go be in the presence of people who look like, at least, they got smiling faces and their lives are put together. That's hard too. And sometimes you've been burned by the church and its leaders and you don't want to have to go face them and sometimes you've been burned out by the church and you don't wanna be reminded of the exhaustion. But friends, if this is true, if, if we enter into a dialogue with the one true God in a way that we don't in our daily quiet times, when we gather as a corporate people and enter into this dialogue, to neglect that is to do harm. It is to do harm to ourselves and to our families. And so what's involved in worship is paying attention to God's word. It's also to enter into that dialogue with him. And then lastly, we sanctify ourselves for his service. Israel is told how they are to set themselves apart from the rest of the world, how they are to act as a light to the nations, bringing blessing and joy to the rest of the world. He tells them in verse 14 of chapter 24 to throw off the gods of their fathers. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It's likely that Abraham and his fathers were in some form or fashion moon worshipers. So what he's telling them is let's not have anything to do with the, with the gods of your fathers. When you were back in Ur of the Chaldeans, before I called Abraham out of Ur and became his God and claimed him as my own, have nothing to do with those gods. Friends, what are the gods of your fathers? What are the gods that you tend to lean towards that your fathers served, whether your literal fathers or your figurative fathers? Is it wealth? Did you grow up in a home with lots of wealth and comfort, and that's what you are giving yourself to, that you're serving money and not God? Or is it power and success? Was your, were your parents powerful, successful people, or were they mediocre? And you don't want to be mediocre. You want to be powerful and successful, and so you do all you can to be powerful and successful. Or maybe it's presentation. Your mom put your whole family together on Sunday mornings, and so 
you feel like you have to present yourself in, uh, in the best way you can, and any blemish creates anxiety and depression. What are those gods, those things that you're serving that were handed down to you from your fathers? And then he also says to throw off the gods of the culture. He says in uh, chapter 23, after recounting what God has done for them, that he will continue to fight for them. Verse six, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you and make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. He says, don't, don't give yourselves to those gods. They're not your gods. They're not the ones who have worked so hard for you. They're not the ones who have established you as a nation, given you an, an inheritance. What are those gods of our culture? that you have an inclination toward, that you serve and give your time and talent and treasure to? Is it autonomy that you are the center, that no one gets to tell you what to do? Is it the materialism of the Western world? It's just one more thing? Or, or maybe it's America itself, that you actually bow to the flag and not to the cross. What is it in our culture that you are inclined towards? And God says to sanctify ourselves means to throw all of those things off. And in verse eight of chapter 23, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. And in verse 11, be very careful therefore to love the Lord your God we were reminded earlier that the first commandment is that we shall have no other gods before our God. We shall have no other gods besides him. We shall give ourselves, set our lives apart for his service alone. Not service of God and a couple other things, but service of the one true God alone. And that's what it means to set ourselves apart, to sanctify ourselves for his service, is to throw off the gods of our fathers and our culture and to love and to cling to the one true God who has worked redemption for us in Jesus. And so our worship services are tangible ways to pay attention to God, to enter into a dialogue with him and to satisfy ourselves or sanctify ourselves for his service. I'll close with this. Uh, on Friday, I was, Friday evening, I was watching football, uh, the University of Virginia game versus Virginia Tech. I was uh, trying to continue to digest my food from the evening before but while watching football. And Virginia Tech won for the 15th year in a row. If you're a UVA fan, I'm sorry. But I, something caught my attention at the end of the game. They're playing for what's called the Commonwealth Cup. It's this massive chalice. And, and it's just a big cup and it's got a huge brim. And what I saw were these huge humans known as football players holding this chalice full of water, presumably water. And they were, they were turning it up and just splashing themselves. 
with this chalice full of water, drinking it down. And what the Commonwealth Cup represents for UVA and for Virginia Tech is a way to celebrate, a way to celebrate past victories, but also a way to empower future movement, future success. It's the goal, not only that they would win it this year, but the next year they would win it too. You see, when we enter into worship on Sunday mornings, when we come to this place, we celebrate past victories. We are reminded of all that God has done for us in Jesus, and we celebrate him for it. But we're also empowered, empowered to move into a new week, to remain faithful to the one living God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We are reminded week in and week out that we don't deserve it, that that there's nothing inside of us that was worthy of your affection and your love, but you loved us still. And you sent your Jesus just to prove it and to save us and to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. So we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us, that you would empower us to move forward this week into another week in an attempt to remain faithful to that covenant that you have made with us and that we have offered ourselves to. So strengthen us and empower us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.